Welcome back to the Scarlet Thread Society. As always, it's me, Paz. Welcome, folks. I've got a very special treat for you tonight. With me is Glass Delusions, and they're going to talk about something that I've been wondering about myself for a very long time. Say hi, please. Hi. How's it going, everyone? Thanks for having me. Of course. It's sincerely my pleasure. Now, we were introduced on what was formerly, and in my heart is still Twitter, uh, just several weeks ago, and we were talking about Art Bell at the time, but we got to talking about some other interests, and you had mentioned stargazing and the Julian and Gregorian calendars, if I'm recalling how that conversation went correctly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I always I always leap to that subject whenever <laughs> to any listening ear. So, I guess what I have to ask up front is in brief, what's the difference and why does it matter? Yeah, so um so in the 1580s, Pope Gregory uh is He's the the Pope of the the leader of the Vatican Church at the time, and he is trying to stabilize. Um, he's trying to stabilize the calendar and stabilize the vernal equinox in the northern hemisphere, because essentially, with Earth's orbit around the sun, um, Earth orbits uh, Earth's orbit is three hundred sixty five days long. But it's actually there's a quarter of a day. It's actually three hundred sixty five point two five days long, and um, it, basically what that means is that every one hundred years or so, the day of the vernal equinox precesses backwards one day per century, essentially. And the Pope, the Julian calendar, which is the calendar that was used by most of the West uh, up until this point in the 1580s um, had sort of accounted for this. Um, The Julian calendar had an intercalation, which is the insertion of an extra day um, to help stabilize time a little bit. Um, The Julian calendar's intercalation is, is about one day per 100 years to sort of just um, make up for the day that's lost. But with the Julian calendar, you still have the procession of the equinox where the the solar equinox moves backwards one day per hundred years. Anyway, so Pope Gregory wants to make a calendar that stabilizes uh, stabilizes time and it stabilizes the vernal equinox. Um, around the year that Jesus Christ was born, the vernal equinox was happening on March 25th. Um, by the time of the first council of Nicaea in 325 AD, um, in the early Christian church, the, the vernal equinox had, um, processed back to March 21st. And then in 1582, when Pope Gregory was Pope, uh, he, the vernal equinox was on March 11th. So he wanted to take the, stabilize the vernal equinox back to the time that it happened. He wanted to restore the vernal equinox at the time, the day that it happened during the first council of Nicaea, March 21st. Um, So that's sort of a, that's a complicated kind of his explanation of it. So I'm happy to answer more questions and delve into that. But why it matters is essentially 
fixing the vernal equinox um, and restoring it and keeping it at a fixed date on the calendar um, affects our perception of of our relationship to the sun, Earth's position relative to the sun. And um, it can get when the further and further away we are from um, from you know, 325 AD is several centuries back. And so the further away from that year we are, the more distorted our perception of our relationship to the sun is. And um, I haven't done the exact math because it's not the, the Earth's axial precession is you lose a day every 100 years or so. So I don't have the exact calculation, but essentially like right now in the year 2023, the true vernal equinox happens around March 4th, um, but we're operating on March 20, 21st, 20th um, every year. And um, I mean, that has huge implications in terms of like how you run agriculture and, you know, how you just how you perceive time in general. Um, it's a pretty big distortion. So I would say that that's why the number one reason why it matters, these differences between calendars. So should I correctly assume then that you would judge it and a reasonable person would judge it to be a mistake to have created a fixed state instead of just sort of mentally adjusting for it? Um, yeah, I definitely something that's been puzzling to me throughout the, when I first started like researching this and and st- sort of thinking about it is that everybody seems to assume I would say that I consider it a mistake to fix the vernal equinox. But everybody else who talks about this and they talk about um, the intercalation of the leap day every four years, they all sort of assume that it's a problem to move backwards in time, to lose a day every 100 years. And I'm not really sure why that's an issue. <laughs> like I've never understood why people are like, because everybody's justification when I listen to like you know, mathematicians or uh, geophysicists or astrophysicists, they all say, well, we have to have a fixed, we have to have a calendar that accounts for the extra quarter of a day um, through a leap year, because otherwise we would, uh, our, our equinoxes would move backwards in time. And they never really, I have not, I have yet to find an explanation as to why that's a bad thing. <laughs> it's not a bad thing. Um, and uh, civilizations of antiquity, you know, had, um, they, they had ways of observing this, this procession of the equinox, Earth's axial procession. And, um, they framed it in, well, in Western civilizations, they framed it, um, and some Vedic traditions as, um, astrological ages. Like they, like they, they paid attention to the, to the, astrological constellations that were being projected onto earth during the vernal equinox. Um, and so it was all very, it was, it was normal earth's axial procession and the procession of the equinox was very normal and fixed within, um, it was, it was observed within this astrological cycle. And so it was narrativized and mythologized and it wasn't an issue. And now there's sort of like, I don't know, it feels very arbitrary to me to say that it's like, a, that it's a problem that we lose the, a day every 100 years. So you mentioned in there that predecessor cultures sort of accounted for this by 
creating grander ages. Is that sort of the origin of the age of Aquarius in yes. the way that it's talked about? I guess I want to be specific in sort of new age schemas and belief sets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes. Yeah, so um, the the essentially what Earth's axial precession is in relation to astrological ages is on the day of the vernal equinox from the perspective of the Western uh, hem- hemisphere, the Northern Western hemisphere. On the day of the vernal equinox, there is a constellation, a zodiac constellation that is rising on the horizon when when the sun is hitting the equator. And that uh, constellation dictates what astrological age we are situated in. And in um, in in antiquity and in um, mythology and, and cosmology and cosmography, um, it was understood that because the Earth is facing a particular, because there's a particular constellation that is being projected onto the Earth at the time of the vernal equinox, that that all of the significations and the symbols of that zodiac constellation, that is projecting certain characteristics or effects onto civilization over the next 2,000 years. So it takes about 2,000 to 2,500 years for the Earth's axial precession to to move through each zodiac sign and so um so it had the these the, the astrological age had a huge effect on a civilizational arc because civilizations usually sort of come into being they they crest and then they decline and fall away over the course of 2000 years um so yeah that's that is how the the physics and the mythology sort of interlink and in the new age tradition um that comes about when well you had a sort of renewed interest in the occult in the very early 20th century obviously the occult has been practiced for um all of human history but there was a, a, an upswing um particularly in the Western world and in America in the early 20th century where there was a renewed interest in the occult. And as people start learning and thinking more about this and um, sort of developing even newer ideas um, for, for how to interweave modernity and the occult together, then you start to get people um, observing, thinking about, like reading about the astrological ages and observing time and how, um, and, and sort of aligning older calendars up with where we are now. And in the 1960s and 70s, um, astrologers and a lot of new age practitioners were realizing that the age of Aquarius is coming up pretty soon. Um, And the sort of the consensus among many astrologers is that the age of Aquarius will be fully present. Well, we will be fully instantiated in the age of Aquarius around the year 2140. So um, it was, we're about 100 years out. So that was like a pretty, the age of Aquarius sort of started getting traction because it was um, pretty soon, happening pretty soon. So now you had mentioned at the outset that these things would be relevant for purposes of, say, just for example, agriculture was a big one you brought up. Without Mm -hmm. shifting too much here, I've got a link in mind later. Uh, could we backtrack to that a little bit and 
Could you tell me and my audience a little bit about how that would be the case? How it affects agriculture? Yes, please. Yeah. Um, so I think that, you know, I think that that now in this moment we have so many – it's hard to imagine um, agricultural cycles occurring in tandem with the sun just because now we have these technologies um, – um, to that allows us to grow whatever we want to grow um we have greenhouse technology so we can grow into the winter and still produce um food and everything but um when agriculture dawned um sort of in early in early sort of settled civilizations it was very much dependent on location and position to the sun and um it's and if you weren't tracking, I mean, the way that I sort of, I, this is kind of like a crude analogy or example, but the way that I sort of look at um, how like astronomy and astrology and survival is if you're not, if if we're not planting seeds in the springtime when when the, the ground is starting to thaw, then we're not going to be, uh, if we're not working in tandem with the sun. Then we're we're not gonna live. You're and not just, gonna eat that fall, right? Right, exactly. And there's, I mean, it's really not stable. Obviously, you can still hunt, um, but you know, you're not gonna get the yields of game. Even, I mean, I mean, game is explodes in in um, it, it, it proliferates because they can eat what you're it's growing. Almost as well. like there's something to that. Huh? <laughs> almost, yeah. I was reading. Um, Earlier today, I was was reading in preparation for this about the Milankovitch cycles, um, because Milankovitch had uh, written up a revised Julian calendar. But anyway, um, and NASA, the NASA website has a whole little article about the Milankovitch orbital cycles, and they talk about there. There was a really interesting uh, sentence. I'm going to try to find it, um, where they say that there's cycles like cycles govern our reality and they say other cycles are human produced like growing and harvesting crops and i was like it's not human produced <laughs> like i don't i that's sort of a weird statement to say that there i guess humans observe the s- patterns of the sun and so then they can produce agricultural cycles but i was i just sort but of thought that's that that- really not even what they're trying to say in that article and i can see your objection there they seem to be making this claim that we somehow imposed every one of these cycles instead of adapting to them as a material reality right. at various points. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. And the thing is, is that um, we adapt to those cycles according to when the equinox is happening, when the, when the ground is thawing and according to where the earth is in, in relation to the sun. We adapt to that, and there's no. And this just brings me back to the point that I said earlier. There's no reason to be, to have objection to losing a day every hundred years, and there's no reason to fix the vernal equinox. It's all very strange, and I, you know, there's no, I guess, hard evidence to this. But my sort of thesis is that it was completely political and religious, ideological ideological motivation for pope gregory to do this to to institute his gregorian calendar 
Are you saying as a way of sort of legacy making or yes. what is the implication there? Yeah. So, so essentially what's happening now, um, when the, so I mentioned this at the beginning, when Christ was born, the vernal equinox was happening around March 25th. And when the vernal equinox is happening in the middle of March, the, the, zodiac sign that's on the horizon that is rising at that time is Pisces. And so we are in the age of Pisces. And the year that Christ was born is known as the beginning of the age of Pisces. Now, in um, cosmology, in astrological cosmology, Pisces is the sign of uh, monotheistic religion. It's the sign of higher spirituality, the sign of transcendence, the sign of messianic savior, redemption, messianic redemption um and it's the sign of of what sort of hierarchy sort of top-down spiritual transcendence um it's the sign of the fish uh the two fish which is of course um christ adopted that that symbol the early church adopted that symbol for christ um and yeah so so the age of pisces signals a civilizational arc where there is monotheistic religion has supremacy over the world. Now, not only, and so the church, obviously it, the Catholic church has, um, bears a lot of weight and throws a lot of weight around with this kind of, um, messianic spiritual tradition. Um, but also there's, uh, Islam, which is, you know, monotheistic as well. Um, you also see a lot of, like even Buddhism, even something as radically different from Christianity as Buddhism, you still have the Buddha, who is this singular figure that leads people to a sort of salvation um, or redemption for their soul or reincarnation or leads them leads them into enlightenment. Um, so it the age of Pisces is global, truly, in the sense that um, that civilizations living in this time in this age are practicing monotheism but um to me uh the church recognizes this the church and astrology also there were there were astrologers were all clergymen in the early christian church as well in the middle ages um practicing astrology starts to decline um in the church and then eventually by by 1589 which is seven years after the institution of the gregorian calendar by 1589 it became heretical to practice astrology in in the catholic church but that's another that's a whole other can of worms um but uh the church understood that understood these sort of civilizational narratives and they understood where we were in time in earth's axial precession they also understood that again by the 1580s the, we were already sort of halfway through the age of pisces and they could see they could project you know several centuries into the future and they could see that the age of aquarius was going to was coming up on the horizon and that monotheistic religion would no longer have supremacy and so by fixing the spring equinox, you you artificially keep people in the age of Pisces. Now, I suppose the first question that jumps to my mind is really going to be pure speculation. Mm -hmm. Because as far back as you or I or any of our ancestors have true memory, we would not have known anything different. 
Right. Uh, do you would you presume that it would be a radical shift? Is there reason to believe that it would be? Um, you mean in in terms of like from Pisces to Aquarius? Yeah. Well, how, how do you mean radical? I suppose we're talking about civilizations cresting and then receding, mm-hmm. and trends in the nature of how culture civilized changing in accordance with these eras or these ages. Is it something that we should expect future peoples to even recognize? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think that the. Yes, I think that we will recognize it. I think that we have been conditioned to suppress that recognition, um, which is not well, in my opinion, um, is not good. <laughs> um, I object to that, but um, I object to this this suppression of of it. And I think that I, so here's the thing about the age of Aquarius. Aquarius as a sign is the sign of community. It's the sign of networks. It's the sign of like sort of rhizomatic existence. They're all hierarchy sort of dispels and it dispels in favor of kind of like different kinds of resonances. Like that Aquarius is a network that doesn't have, it's not top down, but it has different, there's different resonances that we can choose to follow or, um, or, ignore you know whatever but it's not it doesn't look like a bureaucratic like one person is the head of something and then from there is all sorts of like managerial positions um aquarius to your point to your point going back to gregory and his potential assumptions in making this shift then that would obviously be read as a move in the favor of the future political strength of his successors Mm -hmm. Yes. Right by artificially fixing it, then there's no chance of disrupting what you specifically said was hierarchy, and which makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that um, I I have sort of I mean this is where my thoughts sort of take a very spiritual bent. I just think that there is no ignoring it. I think that it is. Um, I think that the shift is slow, but it is radical. Um, but it's not something that happens overnight necessarily either. Um, but it is radical and we do recognize it. And when we try to stop this shift and when we try to like fix ourselves in one astrological age, it's going to create a lot of strife. I, I think that as civilizations decline and we enter into a new era, that's already a time of turmoil and struggle, but I think that trying to ignore it is creates a lot more problems for us on a psycho-spiritual level. Sure. And of course, this is probably purely hypothetical work at this point mm-hmm. because we don't necessarily have any accounts of living through it. I suppose I don't know what was happening to the Roman cults as the age of Pisces came about. Is right. there any... Do we have any scholarship on that even that might lend credence to this theorizing? Um, we probably do, and it's just hidden in deep layers of esotericism that I am just still on a quest for. <laughs> I suppose um, the first thing that might come to my mind is the rise of emperor worship 
and the divinity of the emperor as opposed to the, like I said, numerous cults that we had, or even the later replacement of their entire pantheon with the soldier's cult of Mithras before the final collapse of the empire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And you can also sort of think about, so the, the astrological age that comes before Pisces. And so the astrological age that was, um, that we were in during the rise of the Roman empire is the age of Aries. And Aries is a a zodiac sign, um, that worships war and, uh, and soldiers. And it's just, I mean, Aries is the sign of, of war, um, and conflict and struggle. So yeah, um, Mithraic cults are definitely the place to, the place to look for for any kind of documentation of of that sort of phenomenon yeah. looking yeah. at or talking about and i suppose that would go a long way towards explaining things like the sea people and the mm-hmm. bronze age collapse and all of that too yes yeah absolutely absolutely and as we make more discoveries um you know with the gobekli tepe discovery um that was huge because um there are so many uh uh icons of bulls and um sort of this like strange like mythic worship of of a bull the animal bull um all around Gobekli Tepe and you can with their sort of carbon dating of Gobekli Tepe that puts us in the age of Taurus Taurus is the bull as well so like there's all sorts of as these new temples and new archaeological sites are being excavated. Um, there's a lot to be learned from sort of megalithic structures or also temp- temple structures that we're uncovering as well. That part in particular is really fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, huh. yeah, it's crazy, and it's. Uh, but it's hard to it's hard to give credence or i think that that the mainstream won't give credence to these things you know they want to slow down the research um that would and you know it's sort of in the name of being scientifically rigorous sure but there's a lot of suppression so that. that in particular is a big theme with me as well and i want to put you on the spot a little bit if you'll permit me and just ask you how much of that do you think is intentional and how much of it do you think is the replication of the decision of the people who decided it needed to be repressed? To put it in simpler terms, how much of that is a conscious suppression and how much of it do you think is an unconscious repetition of older methods and choices? I think it's mostly just unconscious and, and mostly like to deal with repetition. I think that um, I think that people are conditioned <laughs> to not to to just sort of like go with whatever method has been in use for as long as for for the longest period of time but i think that there are um i think that there is a there's definitely a minority of very powerful people who are very well versed in cosmology and um, for whatever reason, you know, want to want to sort of suppress cyclical time. Um, I don't. I think that that's 
as I said, it's a minority. I don't think that it's like a, I don't think that the the majority of people who try to suppress alternative history, um, I don't think that they're they're conscious of it. I think that they're con- they've been conditioned by a very small but powerful amount of people. <laughs> so to your point on that, I was just talking about this on a uh, related on this same podcast actually just a week or two ago, and the conclusion that I and the others came to was more or less that when you have these people who have amassed through their bloodline sufficient wealth, power, soft influence to touch lovers of power, and they get in their head ideas and rituals and traditions, literally family traditions about the way these things need to be done, Mm -hmm. and then they have the ability to touch these institutions and guide these whole factions that are able to affect these things, why then wouldn't you, if your grandpappy told you it works this way and it worked out for him, why wouldn't you keep doing that right. until eventually you know, you get to a situation where you can lean on the Smithsonian because you're the one who funded them to say, yeah, obviously X, Y, and Z is this, and you're not going to clue in every employee there, but if they're working to your ends, they don't need to be clued in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. And it's like, it's sort of, I would say that that's like an organic double blind method, I guess. Because, <laughs> you know, there's there's all sorts of methods where it's instituted that you have to, that you, the, the chief scientist can't tell the other scientists two levels down what they're doing because you want to like keep it, keep the control sort of free from contamination or whatever. But it, that's exactly what you're talking about. Like that's the organic what you're talking about is the organic way of of doing that, ensuring sort of like a double blind thing where people are just not questioning what's being told to them. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, wow. Um, So that's, that's a lot to digest, I guess, immediately. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Where are my thoughts even going here? What could I possibly ask you? It's only been 30 minutes and you've already given us so much to digest. Uh, Maybe just a little bit more while I chew on that about your background, how you came to your interest in all mm-hmm. of this. Mm-hmm. Was there an inciting event? Um, uh, it probably was actually like just stumbling upon the Julian calendar and the history around the Gregorian calendar. Truly, um, I started studying astrology in 2016. Um, and was sort of just taking some early classes about how to read um, personal natal charts and um, and very rudimentary classes, I mean. Um, and then in t- around 2020, um, I lost my job. I had a lot of time on my hands and I really just like delved into the esoteric <laughs> occult readings um, and started really thinking about um cyclical time versus linear time something that is and and that is also maybe like an inciting event as well um um just realizing that linear time is completely man-made and comp- and uh, just distorts everything that we've that it, it distorts every everything that has been a part of human 
psychological evolution, really. I mean, we, we so maybe not even just realizing it, but I feel like what you're getting at is sort of grokking it, right? Yeah, in the Heinleinian sense, developing a full internalized understanding. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's interesting because because when you realize like, oh, linear time is just a function of the fact that we had electricity and like extending or or even, you know, just like trying to use candlelight to extend the working day that it, linear time doesn't need to exist. And it's just it, it we just sort of blindly stumbled into linear time because we could extend the day. And, and that connection in particular, I never would have made in a heartbeat if you wouldn't bring it up. Yeah. The idea yeah. that was electricity or even improving light burning technology that was driving this. Yeah. Never would have occurred to me, but there's something to that. Yeah. And I'm not so much of a traditionalist that I think that electricity is bad. I mean, I think that like, I guess I would take, and I have to use this term lightly because I have not read the book by Guillaume Fay, but I would take an archaeofuturist stance toward all of this. Um, but don't ask me too much about that because I still need to read the book. <laughs> so I really like the idea and the vibe that that title brings, but I don't know the first thing about the ideology. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. In in brief, what I can say about it is archaeofuturism is sort of like uh, you still are motivated to technologically progress into the future, but you take a you take traditions from the past, and and that's and and the traditions from the past, the archaic knowledge and the ancestral heritage knowledge is what informs your technological progress. So I think that you know on one side of a lot of like cyclical time ideologies on one on one end of that spectrum, um, you get sort of people who were like, we just need to do away with linear time. We need to do away. We just need to live in tandem with like the movement of the sun and the summertime is going to be the time of, um, the summertime is going to be the time when we have the most daylight and when we have the most productivity. And then the wintertime is when we all just like have to hibernate and stuff. And I think I don't go that far ahead. I think that, um, we should, we should continue to forge ahead with technological progress, but we have to understand what technological progress has sort of cost us. And to me, that's cyclical time um, or, or like a forgetting and amnesia of cyclical time. And when you're measuring things in cycles, and now I'm just getting really abstract and and sort of <laughs> no, um, in the big picture. No, please keep going. This is wonderful. Thanks. Um, when you when you are not living in cyclical time, you just sort of like, and this is also very Christian. We also must remember, like Christianity is teleological. It's fundamentally teleological, also linear, going toward salvation, going toward heaven, going toward the end of time when there will be a quote unquote final judgment, and everything sort of like ends at this point. But the problem with linear time and telos is you're going and going and going and teleological time is a point on the horizon that recedes as you approach it. So you're just like never, you just drive yourself crazy. Whereas like in cyclical time, you want, everything has a rhythm. Everything has a season. It's so much more peaceful to live cyclically because you understand that there will be fallow periods and then there will be peak periods of productivity. There will be seasons of winter, fall and winter. And then there will also be seasons of awakening, springtime and summertime. And the other thing about cyclical time that a lot of people will complain about too, they'll be like, well, if we just lived cyclically, 
then doesn't that isn't that entrapping us in this like forever repeating history but that's not that's not the case at all time cyclical time is actually more like a conch shell it actually like spirals upward or downward i mean i guess it could be a descending spiral too um but it's not the themes repeat and the seasons repeat but it's not a repetition of the story necessarily um it's it's sure it's not like something's being replayed it's a case of rhyming not repeating Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. exactly and so it's and and to me it again to me it's just a much more peaceful way of living because there's this um there's other anxieties that people um when people are really getting into the esoteric shit with this where they'll say like a lot of like christians um who believe in this in the second coming of christ who believe that it will happen and the final judgment will come and they have a lot of like anxieties around this kind of this topic because they're like well what comes after christianity like what do you how do you frame your morality or your ethics without christianity and i mean i say this tongue in cheek but i'm also a little bit serious like it's just Christianity will come again in 26,000 years. It'll be fine. But we just have to like <laughs> you just ha- like we just have to like let go. Um well, right, realize <laughs> it's out of our hands. It's not something for us to be anxious about anyways. Right, right. And I mean, I see I I see the zodiac and astrology as as a framework. I see that as like the perennial truth of the universe. And so and it is out of our hands. And the zodiac has 12 like it has all the life cycles that you could that that fulfill a lifetime essentially and so it's i don't know i i don't feel any kind of anxiety when i think about moving through when i think about humanity moving through the 12 signs now we've brought up the astrology a couple of times now and I think it's safe to say that you are both a practitioner and a fairly firm believer. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I do have a there is a spiritual element to it for me. Um like I do I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of ways that I can make it into something spiritual for sure. Um but I definitely lean more toward defining defining myself as a practitioner. And to me astrology is it's not like you wouldn't say that you believe in English grammar. Like, no, and so of course not. Right. <laughs> so like, so I think that, yeah, astrology is, is kind of like a grammar. It's, it's a system. Um, and it's that, sort of, I think I'm going to cut you off here yeah. because I just want to acknowledge how clever that is as a framing. <laughs> yeah. That um, that's really good. I hadn't thought of it in those terms either myself. Mm hmm. Yeah. And that's the thing is that people, again, talking about conditioning, like with new age spirituality, people have been conditioned to think of astrology as this other belief system. But crucially, in religions and other spiritualities, crucially, there are so many things called mystery, like the mysteries of faith. And that's that's literally what the phrase is in Christianity. But then you also have a lot of mystery rites with like the Eleusinian mysteries. Um, there's a lot of mysteries in uh, the rituals of Judaism and so on and so forth. And there's a lot of things where people just give up 
um, they give up their their knowledge or their rational knowledge of something simply because they can't, and and they just say, okay, well, it's just faith. And so yes, it's an accepted principle, and it, you hold those things in tension for the sake of strengthening your faith. Right. Right. And with astrology, I think that it's easy to. I th- I think that it's it's sort of a um, a very cowardly and easy thing to to just lump astrology in with the belief systems because what happens with astrology is people are sort of like, okay, well, I don't really know how a planet that's several light years away, thousands of light years away, such as Saturn, and I don't really know how Saturn can actually affect my life. Like how do you act what are the principles in place that dictates that Saturn rules maturity and restriction and constraint in your life? And what does it mean for someone to have their natal Saturn placement in Aquarius? Like and so people are sort of like how how do I know that Saturn is actually affecting me in in X Y and Z particular ways? And so they can just say okay, well it's just a mystery, so therefore it's a belief system. Therefore it's a spirituality. Um Carl Jung, when he coined the term synchronicity, he's looking at. Um, I mean, I mean, he he's looking at astrology, and he was a pr- big practitioner in astrology, and and he's looking at astrology, and he's saying there's an a causal relationship between the planets and the material reality, and it's a causal in the sense that it's cannot be defined in terms of. Um, enlightenment era science it can't be defined as like here's the cause here's the effect and it's replicatable and it's verifiable so therefore it's it's called a synchronicity and that's that's how he coined and defined that term i do love me some young too it's <laughs> nice to hear his name coming up yeah here. yeah me too so have you found since you became a practitioner then that the principles and the things you've learned from that have helped you attain a better understanding of yourself and others? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, myself. Um, I think that, you know, another like hairy uh, uh, question that comes up from for a lot of people. I mean, I, I meet, there's a lot of people who are like very open to what I have to say about astrology. And then every so often, there's people who like are really Prickly. viscerally opposed yes <laughs> viscerally like it's true i wear i wear a my sun sign is in pisces and i wear a nameplate necklace that says pisces now because like i mean i rail against sun sign astrology because i think that it's like a giant psyop um to derail and delegitimize astrology um because we're not just our sun sign but whatever anyway i wear <laughs> my pisces nameplate as kind of like a dog whistle because people will like people will either write me off or they'll like be totally accepting of it, you know. And so I just like the people who write me off and who have like visceral skepticism. I'm, yeah, it's and I'm I'm totally open to it. I totally like talk to skeptics all the time. I've definitely like converted a few skeptics too. But my original point why I bring that up is, um, people are always like, "Well, what about free will?" Like, I don't really like the fact that you're trying to tell me that I live within a deterministic, um sort of realm and i don't really like the fact that you're telling me that like like people a a common response is like well i've i've worked really hard to cultivate who i am as a person and i don't really like that you're saying that you can just like read me like a book because i've tried really hard to to make myself into someone that i find to be good and worthy um i don't i don't see astrology as being um 
disruptive of that. And also, I think that knowing astrology um, has well, it actually- It seemed like it would be a tool in their toolbox for yes. self-actualization yes, and change, exactly. wouldn't it? Exactly. Because again, you're not just your sun sign. You and you're also not just your natal chart. You you are your natal chart in conversation with the transiting planets as well. Because what's happening is like you have well, first I'll just say my my original point, we can get back to this later, is just that I find that my free will is actually I have even freer will knowing uh, knowing what's happening down the line kind of thing. Um, my options open up tremendously when I know sort of the themes and sort of the weather of my life coming up over the next few months or the next couple of years. But anyway, um, in terms of self-actualization, um, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's, you, you are born at a particular moment in time and yes, time is cyclical, but also like we don't get these moments back. We never, we will never get a fleeting, time is fleeting, moments are fleeting, and we never get that moment in time back to us. But we are an expression of that fleeting moment of time. Everybody, this is also a great thing about astrology. Everybody has a birthday. Like, and so, and so everybody has a sun sign. Everybody has a, a Venus sign. Everybody has a Saturn sign, you know, like, um, and we are an expression of a moment in time. And we, for our small, minuscule lifespan, we express a moment that we will never get back. We express that through how how the planets that were arranged at a particular time at the moment of our birth, we express that through their poetics, through through how they the characteristics that those planets bring and in in what arrangement they are, you know, which all has symbolism. And so you are your natal chart. You are this expression of a fleeting moment of time. But then you're living your life while the planets are actively moving around you. So what that's called is like is is when your natal chart is receiving transits. So like you might be born with your moon at five degrees of Libra, and when transiting Saturn is um, passing through the sign of Aquarius, when transiting Saturn is, hits five degrees of Aquarius, it's making a what's called a trine. It's making a 120 degree angle to your natal moon. And so if you have your natal moon in Libra, it means that you are um, you you work collaboratively. You're you're seeking partnership. You're seeking balance and and harmony. And you feel at your um, you feel emotionally stable when you have um, when you have partners who are working with you. But then and so you might you might express that as sort of like being kind of needy, I guess. Like is is sort of like the negative light that you can define that placement as. But when Saturn is hitting at a when transiting Saturn is hitting that placement from at a 120 degree angle, that means that you self-actualize into a into a person of independence. You, that means that there's Saturn is triggering your natal chart to sort of develop into out of a codependent relationship and into a person who's independently strong, but also a strong collaborator. That's how I would delineate that kind of transit um, as an example. And so um, you know, you can either work with that kind of energy and be very conscious of it and say, okay, this is my moment to really like level up. What are the things that are holding me back? What are these characteristics or these traits of a Libra moon that are holding me back? And how can I work with the energy of the planets to, to evolve out of that? Um, and so you can do that consciously or unconsciously. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the spheres are always influencing us, whether we are aware of it or not.
That is a lot to digest. <laughs> um, I'm following you perfectly well, but I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't take some people a couple listens to really uh, make that an interior understanding or really, as I said before, grok what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So th- the yeah. point being is it's not stripping anyone of their free will so much as showing them potential decision points as they approach and what they can do with this information that is predictable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that, I think that it's, it also, nothing is, is so deterministic that because like you can, you can decide not to go, not to go with the flow of the energy of the planets as well you know um sure nothing's stopping you from just putting your hand up and saying no right right and you can you know you can take responsibility for those consequences and that's um and and it's totally it's completely up to you yeah um so it's just a matter of uh, like uh, attenuating your your response to what's coming up and um again i think that even if you were like if i were to look at cuz i'm trying to like do these sort of calculations in my mind just like off the <laughs> off the top of my head kind of thing off if i were to look cuff, yeah. <laughs> yeah if i were to look at a transit coming up like 3 months or 6 months from now and i can say and i can see what's going to what energies would be at play and I can say like, okay, so obviously like the, the, what is in my best interest according to the planets are options A, B, and C. If I decide to do options X, Y, and Z, I can still do those and I can just say, fuck it, I'll just deal with the consequences and just like see what happens. Um, so, you know, like... Or, or, I mean, what I would do as a person, because I sort of like play it safe, I'd be like, well, obviously I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to abide the rules of these planets. Like, I'm not going to do anything to make right. Saturn mad or whatever. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. So, um, it's, it's just about diversifying your options, I guess, at the end of the day. And this is why people jokingly uh, make analogies between stocks and astrology. <laughs> Now, I seem to recall I read an article once upon a time that there were some traders doing pretty well reading yeah. the birth charts of corporations, though. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a whole other it's a whole other thing. Actually, this is a bigger thing that got me into astrology was actually Bitcoin and astrology. <laughs> so um. <laughs> let's I don't want to stop you, but I think I have to. Could we put a pin in that and maybe do a part two at some point? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Bitcoin and astrology is a big topic. But essentially, there's a quote that I don't know if this is misattributed or if it's if it's completely real, it could be. But people attribute a quote, this particular quote to JP Morgan, where he says, "Millionaires don't have astrologers, but billionaires do." So, yeah. Also Ronald Reagan had an astrologer who like it was ev- well everybody says it was Nancy's astrologer but I mean it was definitely his though right? yeah yeah yes <laughs> yes yes absolutely and that's something I've been over a couple of times cool cool yeah Joan Quigley's um, work is awesome 
Gosh, I, I would love to keep going, but we are coming up fast on our stop already. <laughs> this has flown by. It's yeah. been terrific. Yeah. I wanted to carve out a couple specific minutes. Is there anything you'd like to promote? Anything you do that you want the name out there on? Any books you want to recommend to people? If you could just, you know, do a little advertising yeah. for yourself and others quick before yeah, we yeah. wrap up. So I write a substack um called Cosmographics. Dots, or it's at cosmographics.substack.com. Um, and what I chiefly write is uh, a lunation newsletter. So every new moon and every full moon, I have a little horoscope, astrological vibe check. Um, but I also, that's where most of my writing is done. Um, and uh, my, my thoughts and ideas on, on these kinds of topics uh, are published on that substack. Um, I do offer uh, natal chart readings. I am a consulting astrologer, um, and you can get in touch with me through my Twitter, Glass Delusions, um, for that. And I would say book recommendations. There are so many. Um, I would really recommend The Fourth Turning, which is by um, William Strauss and Neil Howe. And the fourth turning is is what sort of got me into it's a sociological text truly and they they talk a lot about this delineation between cyclical and linear time um they talk about the roman secular calendar and um roman calendars that operated cyclically and they make all sorts of sociology models so strauss and how are the people who created the generation terms like millennial? That's something genics. that my audience is going to be very familiar with. They'll okay. Know that yeah. One. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, what's interesting about the fourth turning is when I started reading that, I was I was sort of thinking in my head. You know, I was kind of like, I was like, this is not really anything new to me. This is just astrology under the guise of meta historical systems analysis. Like, <laughs> um, but it's really just astrology. And something that I started to do in the fourth turning was all of their charts that they. Um, layout, I started comparing particular planetary transits um, and, and like sort of, you know, cross-examining. Um, and, and it's really striking. I mean, they've really like their sociological models are uh, astrological ones <laughs> at the end of the Discovered day. Discovered another truth maybe without even realizing yes. it. Yes. So it's a, it's a, good argument for cyclical time <laughs> for sure that is terrific <laughs> okay uh last call any other things you want to say before we go out um, true i don't think so you know get in touch with me on twitter and happy to to talk more and read my Substack. <laughs> yes and thank you so much for doing this this was a real treat for me i learned a lot a oh lot. that's great that's and great. i would love to do uh bitcoin with you too oh yeah that Let's sounds fascinating. Let's do it for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for having me so much. It was a great conversation. All right. And to the audience, good night. We'll see you next time. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>